From a young age, I remember adults asking me again and again what I wanted to be, where I wanted to be, how I planned to make it all happen in the elusive grown-up world. It felt like I had to look beyond who I was to figure out who I could or should or would be, and the shoulds were consistently louder than the coulds. How could I know what I could be? That would take living. It would take time, setbacks, more joy and more pain. But the truth is, I've always just had trouble thinking too far ahead. What do you want to be when you grow up, they'd ask. And I would squint my eyes, scan what looked like an empty room, and fail to find myself still around. This is issue 19 of Foreign Bodies, and I guess this time around I wanted to try something a little new. Um, you'll walk up to grab a pair of headphones, go on a walk, do some light cleaning around the house, or read the essay below. Either way, I'm really glad you're here, and thank you always for supporting Foreign Bodies. first time I remember wanting to die. There's a scene I have saved in my memory. I'm standing in front of the garage door of our ranch-style suburban house at age 13 or 14, unable to move, staring at my mother's tan Toyota Corolla, which she's left on to heat up before we head out. As we wait for the windows to defrost, I try to stomach a granola bar for breakfast. I'm wearing the drab gray squirt and polo uniform my family could hardly afford for the private school we definitely could not afford. Tears stinging my dry cheeks. I begged my mom for the third morning in a row to let me stay home. No luck. In history class that morning, I thought of the frozen windows of my mother's car and imagined what it would be like to just freeze to death. What was going on in my life to lead me to that thought? Some teenage heartbreak, a family death, my father's sadness. Angst was my middle name, he would tell me in his own harsher words. And so it became a part of my identity, the angsty, selfish one, with little regard for living and a private but dangerous desire for recklessness. A phase of a child's life parents notoriously dread, but a phase, right, nonetheless. My friends and romantic partners at the time often considered me intense, a little too dark, a little too serious, exhaustingly sensitive. I wore my heart on my sleeve and let it get torn up in 10 different ways with every measly attempt to be embraced. But each breakdown led to the same cliched, tear-trenched conclusion. No one understands me. There was always some kind of hovering pain, be it partly a result of an abusive partner, a neglectful friendship, or a newfound isolation. I was convinced by my own voice and by the voices around me that the pain was always of my own making self-inflicted, my fault, 
and, and it was a sensation I couldn't really escape. But all I really wanted was an escape. The thought of persevering, of surviving, it exhausted me. That little regard for survival followed me around as I switched schools for the 10th time in my adolescence. And then as I grew into a so-called self-sustaining adult, the questions about future me became more pointed, more demanding, more overwhelming. Where do you want to go to college became what are you majoring in? What are you doing after college? Are you going to grad school? Will you marry him? When will you have kids? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. How does anyone know? The first time I told someone. I fell in love with a boy and told him three of my deepest, darkest teenage secrets. First, when I lived apart from my parents and with extended family in sixth grade. I had stolen about $200 from my great uncle's wallet to buy new clothes from the Galleria Mall in Houston. The heist backfired, and I will never forget the shame. Second, when I was nine, I took my dad's razor and tried to shave away every hair on my body, only to have the razor slip and slice the skin along my upper thighs and stomach. The tub filled with blood and my scars are still visible today. And last, that I'm not always attached to living and breathing. And that the thought of leaving it all behind for good has brought me some comfort. Though by then I'd never actually made a plan to act on the unimaginable. At that, the boy I loved told me I was being foolish and dramatic. And he demanded I not repeat what I just said, lest it burden the people I love. We eventually went our separate ways much later than we probably should have. And I wouldn't tell another soul that third secret for years. The first time things went too far. I was around 26, working in a local newsroom, and there was a potential Muslim ban making headlines. My best friend of 10 or so years and I were no longer speaking for no major reason other than we'd absolutely grown apart. And my heart was a bit broken over that and over another romantic falling out. It was the culmination of never-ending bad news, a sense of not belonging in the country I chose to become legally bound to, a sense of doom at the mere thought of our climate collapsing, my then undiagnosed depression, those other aforementioned personal pains, and my passive attitude toward living that led me to my first big end-of-life action plan. I texted the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, and the volunteer who responded to my frantic message misspelled my name. I unraveled, immobile, but I didn't act. What shook away the will was a photo of my baby brother and I, a photo I just happened to find while rummaging through my closet where I'd been looking for pants to wear to the pharmacy. 
I called in sick the next day and the day after that. And I ended up working from my bed for nearly the entire month. The moment I told my family. It was New Year's Eve, just a few months after the first time things went too far. And my mom, my dad, my brother and I sat at a cabin dinner table playing a censored game of Cards Against Humanity during a holiday getaway. Hours later, while my parents snapped and my brother binged Netflix in his room, I fell apart on the couch. It was the kind of falling apart that, you know, drenches the neck of your t-shirt. The kind where you're grasping for air, but hoping you ultimately fail. I felt overwhelmed with guilt for potentially hurting the people I love. The immigrants who left everything behind to create a more welcoming future for their children. But this time, unlike the first time, guilt did not keep me from actively contemplating the end. My brother walked out of the room and saw me sitting there broken. He called my parents down, where just an hour ago we'd been laughing together. Through tears, I admitted what I'd felt for as long as I can remember, that I had no real desire to live, that I'd never really imagined a future for myself, that I didn't know exactly why I felt this way. That year, for the first time in my life, I just couldn't contain the passivity of my suicidal ideation. The admission of my family saved me that night. It led me down a road toward medication and counseling, but it did not rid me of this unreliable attachment to living. Suicidal ideation, a term that I only really learned after that conversation with my parents after I started counseling. It's something I'm learning to healthily deal with, much like my chronic spine injury or my clinical depression. After keeping quiet for too long, it's something I want to share with the world. My best friends know about it, my romantic partners have known and will continue to know. And these days, even my employers know. I have to keep a close eye on its intensity during my most painful bouts of depression or during a particularly heavy news cycle. But most days I'm just flying, floating, living, like everyone else did the good and bad days. Maybe only with a clearer focus on the present and a hazier one on the future. The concept still terrifies many of my loved ones. But the more I seem to talk about it, the more I try to demystify it, the more they all tend to or want to understand. Often I return to this essay by Anna Borges, the only writing I found that explains so adequately how I feel. Here's what she said. The threat of suicide isn't like being carried over a waterfall. 
It is like living in the ocean. Not as sea creatures do, native and equipped with feathery gills to dissolve oxygen from my bloodstream, but alone with an expanse of water at all sides. Some days are unremarkable, floating under clear skies and smooth waters. Other days are tumultuous storms you don't know you'll survive, but you're always, always in the ocean. And when you live in the ocean, treading to stay afloat, you eventually get the feeling that one day, inevitably, there will be nowhere for you to go but down. I become adept at treading. I know, or I suspect, or I dread, that my legs will exhaust and I will slip beneath the surface. But I don't want it to be soon. For now, I can and want to keep my head above water. But will is never enough, and so I have learned to surround myself with ways to stay afloat. Thank you so much for listening, for reading, for being here. And a huge thank you to my copy editors and fact checkers, Farah and Hannah. Both of you are invaluable. Below, you'll also find a Q&A with Dr. Robin Hornstein, who's a psychologist based in Philadelphia. She's had 30 plus years experience treating patients with suicidal ideation. You'll find some research um, dealing with suicidal ideation and immigrant groups and marginalized groups, plus more stories and, of course, a photo of Lady. Thank you always for being here and know let me know if you like this little podcast thing definitely my first time doing audio but I hope you enjoyed and 